0: to The Great Work radio program. The Great Work radio and blog are features of Jesse War's website and can be accessed at jessewar.com. That's j-e-s-s-e-w-a-u-g-h.com. We look forward to comments submitted to the blog and hope you enjoy today's program. This is episode 7 of the Charming Intentions
1: series on The Great Work. Hello, and welcome to the Great Work radio program. I'm Jesse Waugh. I recently attended a graduate conference at the University of Cambridge in England, which was entitled Charming Intentions, Occultism, Magic, and the History of Art. It was organized by Daniel Zamani, who is a Ph.D. candidate at Trinity College, Cambridge, and Dr. Alexander Marr. The two day conference was set up to, quote, investigate the intersections between visual culture and the occult tradition, ranging from the material culture of primitive animism through medieval and Renaissance depictions of witchcraft and demonology to contemporary fascination with the supernatural in popular culture. It is a rare thing for the subject, which could be colloquially referred to as occult symbology, to be the focus of a scholarly conference at a top university. And as such, I was more than enthusiastic to attend. This and several following episodes of the great work feature rudimentary recordings of a number of the lectures. Please bear in mind that the quality of the audio is lacking, and also that the speakers refer to various images, icons, and objects which are not presented along with the audio. Most works mentioned should be accessible using an image search. Alexandra Maraccini of the University of Chicago gave a fascinating talk entitled Open Secrets, Alchemical Hermetic Iconography in the Ripley Scrolls. For background on the Ripley Scrolls, do a search for George Ripley Alchemist. I'll include a link to the Wikipedia article on George Ripley on jessewahl.com on this episode's page.
2: Um, welcome back everyone. Uh, welcome to the second day of <coughs> our conference on Charming Intentions, of Cultism, Magic, and the History of Art. I realized that some people could only manage to come to the second day, so welcome uh, to those who arrived today. And I hope everyone else uh, had some time to... Uh, take all of the information in, we received yesterday We had some brilliant papers. Um, Emily starting with a fantastic talk on the apocalyptic, the demonic, and the monstrous in uh, Spanish manuscript illumination, and uh, Nicola doing a brilliant job at uh, the difficult last paper on uh, mercury and in a Mediterranean and political context. Um, today, the first paper is um, going to continue uh, the early modern Renaissance period we looked at yesterday. And the session is gonna be convened uh, by Dr. Alexander Ma, Director of Graduate Studies. who has been extremely supportive of this conference and we're so grateful for him, uh, for his work, and uh, generous um, time uh, during this busy period of the year. So please join me in welcoming Alexander Ma. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Jan. Uh, welcome back to what's um, going to be another wonderful day of the papers, Charming uh, Intentions. It's my pleasure to uh, convene our second session on early modern Europe, and to introduce our first speaker, uh, Alexandra Maraccini, uh, who has a BA from Yale University and an MA from uh, Toronto in Medieval Studies, and is currently a doctoral candidate at the University of Chicago, where she's working with the wonderful Rebecca Zorak. And she'll be speaking to us today on Open Secrets Alchemical Hermetic Iconography in the Ripley Scrolls. Please join me in welcoming her.
3: Our keynote speaker who introduced many of these issues, and also after the work of um, Cambridge's own Jennifer Ramblin, who works on Ripley. So hopefully, we have the back. There are approximately 20 extant copies of the Ripley Scroll, a hermetic chemical recipe for the philosopher's stone in the form of allegorical images. The images are unique, both for their density of iconographic layering and meaning, and for their sheer size, with the scrolls ranging from 4.5 feet to 23 feet in length. Some of the most notable scrolls are themselves associated with notables of English 17th-century thought, namely Haney, Sloan, and Ashmole. It is Ashmole's exemplar I choose to focus on here, working on the model of reading originally 15th-century objects made when Ripley was a canon of Bridlington and influenced by Pseudololian sources, copied throughout the 16th-century and influenced by Paracelsian thought, and ultimately grounded in a peculiarly 17th-century debate about the nature of emerging chemical inquiry within the Royal Society. The Ripley scrolls are remarkable not only for their physical character as manuscript objects, but for their role as open secrets. Objects whose semiotic reference were both multivalent and nominally obscure, both clear to a readership of dramatically inflected scientific minds, but also opaque to the average viewer. Ashmole gave Ripley date of birth as 1415 in Yorkshire, to which he would eventually return after long periods of study on the continent in the 1460s and 70s. After stints in Italy, France, Leuven, and Germany, Ripley produced his most famous text, along a chemical poem, The Compound of Alchemy. Written in 1471, the original copy, dedicated to Edward IV, is still extant as British Library's Sloan Manuscript 2598. Strongly visual in its terminology, and initially printed with one complex circular diagram, the text of Ripley's Compound of Alchemy was also recopied many times in the 15th and 16th centuries, until the reprinting most relevant to our discussion here, that is, in Elias Ashmole's Theatrum Chemicum Britannicum of 1652, which recounts Ripley's enlightening vision of a putrefied toad leading to generative forces of life, the complete text of the compound of alchemy, and perhaps most importantly, a full version of the descriptive text here on the scrolls. The scrolls, most likely the source material for this text, now reside in the Bodleian Library, and preside the basis for my analysis here, although I am only able to present a small portion of their fascinating images. Most copies of the Ripley Scroll begin with a large image of Hermes Trismegistus, or in some cases, Raymond Wool, holding a large alembic, a chemical flask used to heat elements on a furnace. Hermes Trismegistus is the founding figure of a tradition of Hermetic thought dating back to the 2nd century AD. The Hermetic Corpus, a Greco-Egyptian collection of texts that refers to both matters of souls, human, angelic, and demonic, and secrets to immortality, plays in many post-Platonic traditions across the Mediterranean world. In the early modern world, the hermetic corpus is largely introduced, as Francis Gates tells us, through the work of Cicino and Bruno. But the actual texts themselves seem to play little into Ripley's alchemical discourse. Central ideas of a unified structure to the macro and microcosm, for example, do appear to derive from core text. But Hermes Trismegistus, as a founder figure serves as a more allegorical device to the foundation of scientific knowledge and the investigation of the universe's structure through the investigation and manipulation of the states of souls and chemical essences. In many cases, the Hermes Trismegistus figure also stands in for George Ripley and practices the, what the scroll advises the viewer to take. The Olympic class holds a signature of Ripley's original thought process in his recipe for the stove, a putrefied toad. Ripley's description of the toad and its subsequent use in the scroll imagery relies on two essential alchemical principles the generation of life from putrefaction and the power of opposites. That is, that life giving arises from death giving venom, the exalted, the exalted arises from the growth, and the immaterial can arise from the material. The toad, then, represented in every Ripley scroll as life-size or larger, is a key to representing the reasons the scroll artisans have chosen the visual as a medium for transmitting crucial alchemical information rather than merely written text. We, the viewers, see the toad on the scroll and see it both as a symbol for Ripley's experience, that is, proof of the generation putrefaction principle, and as a toad itself whose actual blood will be poured into our flask as we breathe the ingredients for the white stone, one step from the philosopher's stone. Further, it is a kind of proof of principle, a testament to Ripley's authority, which was two centuries past at the time of Ashmore, that the experiment worked, with no Baconian or Boylean experimentation necessary. This type of visual authority plays into the humanistic tradition of comedic leaderships <laughs> and their reverence and respect for the tradition of natural historical inquiry relying on theoretical meaning. The ground British Library Manuscript Additional 5025, five, number 4, and also Bodleian Manuscript, Ashton 40, and Bodleian Manuscript, Bodleian Rolls 1, all depict the same process that the Dakota begins. The production of the White Stone, one of three crucial elements of the Ultimate Philosopher's Stone, and an element of the scrolls I choose to read closely today. They surround the central image of a Trismegistian figure and a monk, holding a book of nature, change to the processes depicted around it. The first of these roundels is denoted by an extra-garter-like scroll of text, reading Prima Materia, and this is the bottom example of Roll's one. The rounder frames itself reads Spiritus, Anima, Corpus, signifying that all three are present in the Prima Materia, depicted in the central illustration, that all three derive from Prima Materia itself. Two constructed god and goddess figures are literally tied to the male and female essences representing by, by silver and gold male and female nudes, each capped by a moon and a sun respectively and our keynote speaker has already spoken about the symbols extensively. One dove alights in the female nude, while a second flies past the veiled nude. The tree of life is in the roundel center, reasonably implying that the essence of life is prima materia itself. Two lions, red and green, like the female nude, and represent two forms of mercury, a recurring theme in the scrolls that addresses the paradox of the metal's seemingly dual stability and instability. <coughs> the male nude is flanked by the dragon, representing the furnace fires, and making another tiny appearance in the roundel it's about half a centimeter in real life, despite the scroll's great length, is Ripley's toad, this time alive rather than putrefied. Sorry. Because the toad is alive, this roundel is the start of the process. That is, prima materia as nature left it before the alchemist's hands touched it. The alchemical marriage of male and female essences, also central to the roundel, is here presented as innate and latent in nature, not, as one might assume, as a byproduct of algae itself. The structure of alchemy is thus innate to prima materia in the Ripley scrolls. The next roundel in the series, split so here, reads The soul forsook his sulfur, or some variation on this line. Other scrolls use Latin to say roundels. Surrounded by Byzantine monastic figures, the male and female essence recline in the perspiring flask on a furnace, as a dove exits the male essence on the left. The furnace reads Seleucia. More chemically and literally speaking, this alludes to combining sulfur in solution, then purifying it by boiling. At play here is also the implied union of the two gendered essences, here intersecting at the crotch. Ultimately, the process of making the white stone is a generative process, resulting from the birth of the new male homunculus soul from the dead female essence and subsequent purification. It is a kind of sex great chemically through death and solution. Or, as Ripley describes it in the second gate of his text, Our solution is the cause of our congelation, for dissolution on the one side corporeal causes congelation on the other side spiritual. In our original example of the first roundels, the generative couple in the chemical coitus solution is surrounded by figures of monks looking into the flask. To the couple, the monks are giants, the hands of God manipulating the state of the soul. Laying on of hands onto the flask in the <coughs> is out here because Hermes Trismegistus' giant hand. Uh, let me just. Oh, sorry. I went past the slide. So you can sort of see it there. I don't know how much. Hmm. Hermes Trismegistus' giant hand rests on the encircling limbic, right next to this round board. The chemical process within the flask is a microcosm for the process of making the white stone as a whole, which itself is a microcosm of creation. The Ripley Scroll is thus a series of nested worlds, each referencing and informing the other. Part of which is also a whole. The monastic figures, which <coughs> are covered of silvers, as a death, resurrection, and creation. Just as the alchemist witnesses the process of the toad's generation from putrefaction, as applied by the toad we've already seen at the top of the flesh holding these roundels. The viewer, in turn, is the giant, <coughs> the least figure, and the monks. Himself with a genitive and putrefying object made of primal materia by the hands of God holding the Olympic of our world, the real one, and all the equally real and compelling worlds of death and rebirth within it. The series of nested worlds continues for the 17th century readers of the scrolls, who again stand a world apart in that the scrolls are already historical objects for them. For Ashmole, these relics of an English alchemy established the tradition of chemical investigation in his own country, as equal in strength to the emerging Dutch and German, and participating in the same Hermetic iconographic tradition. Paradoxically, one can only produce the Philosopher's Stone from these images if one already knows how to do it. That is, if one is already steeped in the international and transhistorical Hermetic language of chemical theory. The next roundel, which I cannot time to take, take the time to read as closely, finishes the purification and these take us over a couple roundels, of the reborn female essence and the production of the white stone. One of the three stones that prepared to compute the ultimate philosophy stone. The rest of the scroll is less explicitly referenced to specific the text, but is nonetheless significant. Again. At this juncture, the scroll gives a heading that indicates the end of the white stone and the beginning of the red stone's production. Emerging from a furnace, the tree of life is depicted, its branches labeled with abbreviations of Spiritus and Animus, and you can see that on the top, and a sun and the moon, again representing the male and female soul essences, Place the tree, surrounded by falling feathers, themselves labeled with the words Spiritus and Animus. The feathers derive from the bird of Hermes, an Ouroboros-like symbol later in the scroll, that I will discuss later. On the trunk of the tree of life, a serpentine Eve or Lilith figure labeled Spiritus with webbed feet descends in the nude to grant an upside-down kiss to a corresponding Adam figure haloed in gold ray. This Adam figure is also a nude, labeled Animal. And I think there's a close-up of them. Next. Yeah. Uh, they stand above a pool containing a tree trunk spouting grapes from which the two other male and female essences labeled Corpus partake. You can see the bottom of the tree here. A smaller sun and moon is like these figures. The pool is an architecturally detailed polygonal structure, with seven turrets containing seven learned figures with flasks, east-labeled vibing, that is, imbibing. The fountain that the Essences united in is not labeled to such a resource, <coughs> but the Glasgow Rosarium Philosophicum uh, Special Collections M.S. Ferguson 2.10 there labels the three aspects of the water. They are Virginis, the virgin milk; the of the spring of vinegar, and an aqua vitae, the water of life. The union of these substances, represented by the union of the male and female figure, eventually produces a mafroginic child the phosphorus stone, represented later in the scroll and buried in the floor. The fact <coughs> that the different scrolls all preserve the biblical tree of life to display this generation of osprey, including one with a crucified Christ in a British Library manuscript, additional 5025, rather than the radically altered illustrations of the aurora Consurgent type that usually under program, are consistent with the use of iconography in the scrolls as a reappropriated Christian allegory, rather than as an entirely separate system of references. The obscurity of this particular reference and its iconographic span caused multiple interpretive divisions again requires a readership deeply educated and invested in the hermetic tradition of imagery and its reference. This type of learned, realistic <coughs> of knowledge, invested as much in the library as in the laboratory, is just the type of knowledge Ashmore was promoting at the Royal Society in the 17th century, when the scroll text reemerged in his theatrical chemical the secretive embedding of knowledge in obscure iconography required the adherent to chemical knowledge to also throw himself into a broad range of hermetic, humanistic, and biblical text on the whole, rendering the scientific tradition continuous with that of the late medieval and early modern university of learning. And I'm just going to show another example from a different manuscript here. Another unique aspect of the Ripley Scroll's Unions of Essences and the Tree of Life is the degree to which the Fountain of Souls portrayed, I'm going to go back to the original one, this architectural. Sorry. Um, Ripley's own gates, the title of each section in his compound of alchemy, suggests the Stivalric topos of storming the castle, and almost every Ripley scroll embodies this trope. The six chrysomagician figures officiating the marriage, representative of six of the compound's gates, are each ensconced in turrets <coughs> with detailed figuration of cornices and carvings. In multiple manuscript examples, the fountain itself is a polygon of six sides enclosed by stone walls. While the alchemical flask is often represented as womb-like and alive, it is also in the Ripley scrolls, shown here as an artificial structure, implying it can be constructed by a human agent rather than simply generated by God. Like the fortification, the fountain of materia for creating the philosopher's stone can be planned, sketched, and constructed out of everyday materials by a man of the right knowledge and the practical know-how. Embodied by the images of the scrolls themselves, this know-how is is the difference between an alchemist and a charlatan. The ability to correctly read the scroll's iconography corresponds directly to the ability to construct the apparatus and chemical basis for making the blossom stove. The aphorism that knowledge is power is apt here, though it might be more apt to credit Hermeneutic. Finally, despite the many assertions in Ripley's text that the ultimate goal of the alchemist <coughs> is not riches but godly knowledge, the final gate, multiplication is evoked in the scrolls, with the representation of either both beggar and hierophant king, or sometimes the alchemist is just beggar. Sorry. This is appropriate, given that alchemy, as Pendle Smith tells us, quite literally beggared many of its adherents, who experimented themselves with poverty. Still, it is unlikely that the beggar represents the <coughs> financial position of the science. Rather, he is a holy fool, clothed in the Robert drapery, with his staff crowned on the newly discovered horseshoe magnet. <coughs> he, m- Bobby and manuscript bodily enrolls one, the tip of his staff becomes a giant pen, with a roll of paper strongly resembling the Ripley scrolls themselves tied around it, bound with a red string, the same red string still untied, the bobbin rolls wood today in the Duke Humphrey's reading room as it unfurls onto the table. Also hung with red string, hanging at the alchemist's side, is a pouch that seems to contain the finished stone itself. This man, who appears to be a beggar, is thus actually a king, holding the key to heaven's treasure house folded in his modest robes. Even the philosopher's possession of the philosopher's stone is thus a completion of opposites. The red string recalls the chains which bound the initial roundels of the Book of Nature and in turn which I can show the blood of Hermes here, and the chains which bound the three types of stones together in the final union at the end of the scroll. The scroll wrapped around the beggar's staff is the Alchemist scroll, which is also our scroll, the one before us, <coughs> on the original scroll, and the copies we have now, those originally belonging to Elias Ashwell, and kept in his library. When we read the iconography of the Ripley Scrolls as we open the Book of Nature using the keys provided by Hermetic Knowledge, to preserve the method of reading as applied by the Ripley Scrolls is thus to preserve a portal into nature's secrets, a way of joining yet enjoyable oppositions of elements that are the basis for 15th and 16th century scientific inquiry. It is this form of inquiry that Ashmole sought to preserve in his own library, as well as in the capture of chemical and botanical. In keeping the powerful iconography of the scrolls secret and yet public, Ashmole also kept it safe for future generations, hoping they wouldn't be too swayed by the rise of Helmontian chemistry to return to humanistic inquiry as part of scientific inquiry that is, to allegory as a mode of thinking just as suited to the chemical sciences, as it is to the theology. <coughs> the in the scrolls today, some just feet from Ashmole's own laboratory, we tap into iconography as a form of transmitting timeless and essential knowledge, neither, the, neither strictly the domain of God nor man. It is in this alchemy, the alchemy of viewership, the union of reading and deep knowledge, that allows for whatever we may produce for nature in the flask. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Alexandra, for a, a very rich talk. Um, we have time for questions. <coughs> Done. Um,
2: Alexandra, you have to talk a bit more about um, the slight the last slide, uh, with the idea the of the Holy Fool and the King, uh, particularly when you looked into its resemblance to the fool in the, um, the charity and to what an extent... That is sort of a, particularly iconography, it seems to require a lot of uh, upward imagery um, until the 10th century, really.
3: So the the tarot imagery that we know of originates in the Visconti Sforza tarot cards of the 1470s, and this particular image, and in some other manuscript images we also see slight variations on this, um, doesn't really appear in those, those cards. So I don't think at this point this is an imagery derived from the tarot at all. I think this is something that happens after that. Like I think <laughs> Arthur Edward Waite actually is the person who put this in the tarot in the 20th century. Like, I think that's a, a 19th century sort of appropriation of this 16th century image. That's right. I, I think, myself, this is more likely
4: to be Saturn um, because the, the beggar in medieval images is Saturn. You get him dressed as a beggar. The, an old man in ragged family. That is one of his forms. So, um, it's, it's another image of Prima Materia at the same time as it is a kind of um, uh, self-portrait in a way of, of the person that drew the image, but I, 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 think, I think that he would be a, a Saturnian reference. Problematically,
3: for the self-portrait figure, across several different manuscripts, we have a beggar that looks almost essentially the same, and it, it could be that the guys who drew all three scrolls looked like a beggar with a long beard, but um, since it appears pretty consistently across scrolls, one of which was probably manufactured in the Netherlands and one of which was probably manufactured in England, I don't know that we can attribute that to the artist rather than maybe to the original idea. No, no, page. that's not what
4: I'm saying. I'm saying that I think its prime um, iconographic meaning is that of Saturn. Oh, quick. As, as prime prima materia. Mm-hmm. which you yourself were referring to the pen and the scroll and this kind of inner outer reference. Between the person, he's not a portrait as a portrait, but a kind of a reference to to the scribe. He's carrying a pen, which Saturn doesn't carry. That that is not part of the Saturnian iconography, that's something else. And as you yourself said, that's probably referring in some way to the person who actually drew this and also to the presence of the viewer who's looking at it. the basic figure is Italian. If you go back to um, imagery of the planets in Italian books of astrology, you'll find that under Saturn there will be figures as beggars.
3: Oh, oh, certainly. This particular reading was just sort of a gloss over that, not to deny that. Great. Right. Um, I think you heard of the thank you
0: for a for talk, about this. Thank you. I have one question um, about the scroll with the six figures in the turrets. Yeah. Um. I guess what I was wondering is,
3: I thought um, the sort of metaphor that you drew, and I, I hope I don't butcher it too much, but um, the metaphor that you drew between sort of the artificial structure as something that should be constructed
0: only by man and requires man's knowledge, as something that's comparable to the ability of people with knowledge of the Hermetic tradition being able to construct the Philosopher's
3: Stone. I was wondering if you could explain that a little bit further, or if that reflected, like something about the knowledge of architecture and its relation to the knowledge of or I guess I was wondering if you could just flush that out a little bit. <laughs> yeah, this is something I have to look into more, but generally, there are two types of... The flask is represented either as a sort of artificial bloom, which of course alludes to natural generation, or as this kind of architectural structure, which to me alludes to artificial manufacture. And the idea that um, man can manufacture just as God generates, a sort of artificial creation, was really interesting to me, and I don't know that it explicitly ties into architectural knowledge, though of course Wren is right next to Ashmole the stained glass windows of the old Ashmolean, so maybe we can make an argument there, um, but I haven't really thought about that with the depths I perhaps should have.
0: It looks just like a baptism of font.
3: Yeah, yeah, it is a kind of, I mean, so in the Glasgow. um it is explicitly labeled as such, and I mean, the thing is, this process, this stage in the process is fermentation, so, I mean, you're supposed to just sort of pour water into your mixture and then let it ferment, so it is a type of chemical baptism, and that definitely alludes to the Christological. Yeah.
4: We, were to- we were speaking previously, and I said that i show sure the origins of this image, because you were talking about the strong Lillian connotations. And having looked at it again this morning, I'm just struck at just how much love there is in Ripley. It's like Ripley is Lull's, pseudo-Lull's prime follower. Um, and it's that manuscript in the Bibli- the National Central Library in Florence, which has, with, by Girolamo da Cremona, is the artist, um, which starts off, but there it is a font. And I think Ripley's contribution definitely is this concept of a castle. But then in some Italian manuscripts, um, another one that's um, in the laurenziana Library in Florence of about 1470, all earlier than this,
3: some of the furnaces are shown in the form of castles. Yeah, we actually have um, a British Library manuscript that shows the furnaces castle castles. So that's a pretty common representation. But just to emphasize sort of um, here... I mean, these are 16th century copies of 15th century, perhaps a single object originating with Ripley himself, perhaps not. So to attribute anything here specifically to Ripley rather than to the whole tradition is kind of dangerous, historically. We
0: have some other questions. I wondered in this image if you considered why the
2: figure has seven sides and what significance are
3: seven? Well, the compound of alchemy describes these steps for the production of Philosopher's Stone yeah. in this area, in seven steps. So each of them alludes to a section of text. Um, so in fact, <coughs> this, is, this is correspondent to Ridley's larger corpus. And of course, seven's a great number, I'm sure they thought about that,
2: they've made a just um, I was just wondering that in, in the tradition of occult Kabbalah, seven would have a very set, specific set of meanings, which would work very well with that imagery <coughs> that you're using there.
3: You know, the thing is, I mean, Robert D, you know we you know you know, Robert Flood and Dee were probably both familiar with these manuscripts, he might have even owned the original. Absolutely, version. yeah. Right, but we don't know that we can sort of backform.
2: No, publishes. I don't know, but I'm just thinking, you know, in that period following of of, of Long, whether
0: there was yes. any... But they, it's, it's you might be able to look at yeah. another manuscript in the Bobby, uh, yeah. which is a Kabbalah manuscript, which yeah. yeah. is the first Kabbalah manuscript to enter the Bodleian in 1620, exactly. which is almost certainly... To yeah, and
2: the, no, the notion of the notion of seven and the the, the sphere of Netzach, which is the the, has its roots, the, the deep the depths of nature, Nature's Goddess, and the tree growing from that, would seem to work really quite well. So it just might be worth it. yeah, certainly. <laughs> uh, one one last question.
0: The yes, yes. These are
4: associated with the presence of John Dee in Lubeck in 1586. And actually, that's when they do see that. That is the date that's actually on some of them. And um, <coughs> Stanton, Linden thought that they were probably produced. They weren't. I, I don't know what the new book about the scrolls says about. And my own theory is that they're not copying anything from the 15th century. They are a creation of the late 16th and had connected with Ripley by inheritance rather than directly with by the man himself. But Ripley's influence on English alchemy was so profound. And then through Thomas, through, through the Nortons as well, that he was transmitting something. But I don't think that they would probably go back to Ripley himself, which is why earlier on I said I felt that there was a the compound of alchemy. Um, directly associated with Ripley and then the scrolls themselves are sort of something slightly other and much more to do with Elizabethan hermeticism than with 15th century Lullian alchemy but nonetheless the Lullian influence is very strong and all the iconography can go back to Florence and to Venice very readily I don't know how exactly what the transmission is that's very mysterious but somewhere there might be missing
3: (coughs) As for the Lubeck thing, um, there are two British Library manuscripts in the 5025 number that are attributed to Lubeck. And one of them has been attributed to D, but that's a really shaky, like we are not entirely sure if he even owned it or that it was in his library. Um, some of them are clearly made by Dutch hands. The style is, is I mean, it's a drapery, it's a guy, everything's very, very Dutch. But then there's one unfinished one which may have been made in the Netherlands and brought back to England to be labeled in English. Then there's some that are clearly made in the Netherlands and labeled in line. There's one that looks like it may be made in Germany. So like, and to speak to your point about the sort of larger than Ripley thing, of course, I mean, there seems to be an international corpus of mm-hmm. manuscript artists working on these, these images. Um, but in terms of the association with Thomas Norton, of course, in the 17th century, Ashmole does print. Norton's ordinal literally directly after all the Ripley texts. So I think um, there's definitely a constellation of related spots there. Mm-hmm.
0: Wonderful. thanks. Thank you for listening to the Great Work Radio program. The Great Work Radio and Blog are features of Jesse War's website and can be accessed at jessewar.com. That's J E S S E W A U G H dot com. We look forward to comments submitted to the blog and hope you enjoyed today's program. Search for the name Jesse Wall to download the great work radio programs from the iTunes store.